0: Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. That is the collect appointed for today, April the 3rd, 2022, the fifth Sunday in Lent. Well, it's been a, a good week here. We are clearly into sort of this spring in, in the mountains, and that is, that means that we get a mixture of, of weather all the time. Um, it, it's cold one day and and hot the, or warm the next, and and so it, it's been a good week. Uh, we've been um, not too busy this week actually. It's kind of a nice week to decompress a little bit. Um, have done some. Uh, damaged, <laughs> not much, I tweaked my back this week in the gym. And so I've been kind of walking gingerly and, and and moving gingerly on that the last couple of days, but it'll be fine by next week. Um, anyway, so just been kind of a, a, you know, nothing exciting sort of a week in, in many ways, but kind of nice, right, to have that. Been able to do a lot of reading. Been reading, um, C.S. Lewis uh, he, he had a a trilogy of books that are that are known as the space trilogy and so you can actually I'm reading that hideous strength which is the the final book in the trilogy um you can it, it's perfectly good as a standalone I would highly recommend it um to sort of understand the times that we're in right now I don't think I could recommend this book highly enough uh, I really think it it'd be something great to read Lewis had some great insight into some of the things that are that are coming up now. I mean, certainly technology has advanced a lot more than it was at the time that he wrote it. But you see things like artificial intelligence, transhumanism, all that kind of stuff. And so we're in a time and an age where we need to talk about those things. We need to sort of become more aware as Christians about what some of the technology that we're using for health, particularly, um, what it actually means and and what it's doing to our bodies. And and then in addition to transhumanism, you know, transgenderism was a was a topic several days this week. Um, you got the mess going on down at in, in at Disney where they're opposing, vehemently opposing, the Florida uh, law that you don't teach about sex and, and have discussions about sex and sexuality with kids in the kindergarten through the third grade. And Disney, of all places, um, is up in arms over this. And, and it's exposing Disney in some ways that as that parents... We need to be really careful about consuming Disney um, entertainment. Frankly, I mean that they're moving in a direction that's that's pretty frightening. There's also tons of other stuff going on right now. But this whole transgender thing, the president this week said that that they're creating the image of God, and the a- answer is yes, yes. And that should prohibit you or at least hinder you from doing the things that they do. If you created the image of God, when you mess with the chemistry and biology and the physiology, then what you're denying is that's a good creation. And we need to, we need to think very seriously about that as Christians and how do we deal with these things. I mean, there's certainly compassion, but at the same time, we need to stand and say, No, 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 no. God created you in this way. And so we're remaking our own creation and and people go along with it and treat it as though that it makes any sense at all, in spite of the fact that you don't change your body chemistry and your body, um, your body biology, you you can do, it's it's awful. I had a discussion with a friend this week whose, whose daughter, one of his daughters actually had a double mastectomy because she believes herself to be a man. And it's, it's, it's awful. I can't imagine as a parent having to go through that. But, but we, I think the church, we need to wake up and we need to talk about these issues and we need to understand what it means to be created in the image of God. What does it mean to be a human? You know, What does it mean to be a human created in the image of God? And, and I think that, that we need to be very clear about that. We need to have co- great compassion for those who are struggling with those issues, but we also need to explain what it means to be created in the image of God. And so when we undertake to change any of those things, then, then what we've done is we denied that he's a good God and a good creator. It's, it's very difficult not to do that, and, and especially when we encourage anything like children taking drastic action. I heard somebody say this week you know, the, that we've uh, used to be that we, we said, oh, so-and-so's going through a phase. Well, now what we do is we mess with the biology to make sure they don't come out of that phase. We, we enshrine it. As something that's going to be there forever. and so we need to we the church need to be very clear on these issues. we need to think through them biblically and we need to understand them biblically as well and 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 we need to celebrate our own creation we we need to be uh, clear that we are a people who celebrate our own creation. It, it, it's you know with its all its imperfections but that's, that's a result of the fall, all this stuff is. And so we, we've just got to be clear. It's just, I, I'm, I'm carrying a deep burden for that right now. So anyway, the, um, we're in today, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 43, verses 16 to 21. God's announcing that he's doing a new thing. And then uh, the gospel in Luke of chapter 20, verses 9 to 19, this is during the last week of uh, Jesus's life, prior to the crucifixion. And, and it's a Parable that he's telling the people in Jerusalem, and then in um, the Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and and it's written from prison in Rome, and, and so we're going to look at some things Paul says there, and, and how we as human beings, um, those created in the image of God, those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, should think about the world. and And I want to point back to the colic that I just read for you. It says, "Give your people grace." to love what you command and desire what you promise give your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise and i think that's the those are the things that we need if we could cultivate two character traits into our christianity it would be to love what he commands and to desire what he promises i mean you are if we desire the things that god promises for us if that, if those are our ultimate desires then, then that changes us. It changes the, the, our desires because we've turned them away from the things of earth and to the things of God. And so, what he, and the reason to want that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. And that's the important thing. And and I've been thinking about Ecclesiastes, it feels like, for about 100 years now, but that's exactly what the message of Ecclesiastes is, is to keep your sights fixed on things above, not on things below, because those things all pass away. So in in the Isaiah passage today, it begins with, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse army and warrior they lie down they cannot rise they're extinguished quenched like a wick so what does it mean to make a way in the sea a path in the mighty waters well it's exactly what happened at the red sea right god made a way in the sea for the people of god to pass through on dry ground so it wasn't just that it wasn't just slog through muddy ground it was a, a a way in the sea so that they could get away from pharaoh's army and leave egypt finally and to see chariot and horse army and warrior lie down and cannot rise they're extinguished quenched like a wick as we see pharaoh's army dying in the red sea so he says this thus says the lord who does these things so i'm reminding you of the exodus is what he's saying is that i want to want you to remember these things I want you to remember that part of the Exodus where the past stayed behind, and it was, it was, it was ultimately defeated. So your past, those who afflicted you, died in the Red Sea. And I, I want to remind you of something here that I've said before. It's been a while, but I've said it before. One of the things that's not allowed is a triumphal celebration of the death of Pharaoh and his army. And, and the reason it's got to be muted is those are other humans created in the image of God. And so Jews are not allowed to, to rejoice at the destruction of Pharaoh and his army because these are people who are created in the image of God. And so they're not allowed to have that rejoicing over it. But God's here reminding them of what he's done for them in the past and then says, remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. Well, he just told them to. He just reminded them of things of old and the former things. But, but at the same time, what, what he's saying is, is that, that we need to get a clue that he's not doing the same things over and over and over. There's, there are patterns, certainly, in the things that God does, and, and there are universals in those things, but, but ultimately what he's saying is it's not going to be like that. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And so one of the things to remember is the context in which Isaiah is speaking to the people. He's at this point speaking to an exiled people. There there are people who are who have been exiled into Babylon. And so in in many ways it bears a resemblance to the exile of the people in Egypt. In both in both cases it was God's will. He's the one who who said this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> Based on repentance, obviously, but they, they, so they're in Babylon. And so he's reminding them of the way that he brought them out of Egypt. But at the same time, he's saying, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He's going to bring them back in a different way. And they're, they're in fact, going to be sent away with lovely parting gifts as exactly as they were in Egypt, but they're going to be blessed in their leaving. They're going to be blessed in going to back to the land. They're going to be blessed by the king who is over them. And and that's a different thing, because they were certainly not blessed before. They were chased and hounded by Pharaoh's army with the intention of destroying them all. And so here, though, he's doing a new thing. He said, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And remember the first challenge the people had after they crossed the Red Sea, because that's certainly the first challenge they had on leaving Egypt. But the first challenge the people face is water. And so there's almost a rebellion three days in because there's no water. And then God miraculously provides water for them there in the wilderness. And did he provide rivers in the desert? Yes, he did that the water that gushed forth from the rock was sufficient to water about 600,000 people plus their animals. So the yes, you that would require a river. <laughs> so God has already done this thing in the past and he says I'm going to do it again. But but so it has a present application to the people of God who are in Babylon that he's going to bring them out and he's going to make a way in the wilderness as he did the time before. But, but they're going to go out with blessing this time. It's not going to be the same way it was that time. It, this will be a different thing. It'll be a different way. But nonetheless, it's the same end result. And, and what he's saying is, is that, that this is all going to be okay. So there's that present application of the people returning to the land, but there's the, the deeper, greater, longer-term application of that, which is ultimately a, a new heaven and a new earth. And those things are going to pass away. And when Jesus, on multiple occasions, uses this idea of water you know, welling up to eternal life, he, he uses it in the temple in, in one teaching and, and says, come to me, all you that thirst. And then he uses it with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's, it, water is a universal problem, and it's a universal need for not just us, but for everything that lives needs water. And so that's the important thing. And then so what do we see is is that we see this river flowing from the temple in Ezekiel's vision. We see that same river in the book of the Revelation, in the new heaven and the new earth. We see that same promise of water in that way. And and water is an important commodity, particularly in places like um, Israel, particularly in places like Africa, where they have seasons of rain and seasons of dry you know, and so what? What you always need in those environments is is you need to make sure that the rain comes when it's intended to come, else life suffers for that. So water is an important thing in in those kinds of environments. It's it's an important thing in our environment as well. Droughts mean something, and and they cost things. And so the the first thing that all life needs is water, and that's the reason it's the first crisis. In the wilderness is because you you can live longer without food than you can without water. You can only make it about three or four days without water. It's not healthy. It's the way a lot of people in hospice die, frankly, is that, that they don't have the water that they need. It's important. It's the most precious thing for human life, but not just for human life, but for animal life and plant life as well and if you've if you've ever been in Africa or anywhere else where um dry season ends and rainy season begins there the in the um guest house that I stayed in in Rwanda when I was there for three months in two thousand uh there was a tree out back, and I got there right at the end of dry season and was there for the beginning of the rainy season and and there was a tree there, and it was just lifeless and dead and Once it began to rain though it began to be unbelievable how quickly it was a frangipani tree and how quickly that thing blossomed and bloomed was absolutely breathtaking. It, it, you could almost watch it unfold. But at the same time, the other things that happened were there was new forms of life came out. I mean, and I mean, as soon as it started raining, there were these things that kind of looked like mosquitoes, but they didn't harm anything. But there were millions of them and they got into everything. Uh, The houses there are not airtight the way ours are here. And so those things were all in the houses and everything else. It's an amazing thing to see what life comes with water. In the parable that Jesus is telling, what he's saying is God's doing a new thing as well, and and he's pointing to himself to say it. And here in this parable, he's clearly pointing to himself. And at the time that he tells it, most of the people who hear it, not the scribes and the Pharisees, um, not the Sanhedrin, but the people who hear it—remember, this is a huge pilgrim festival. And so there's people from all over, not just the land, but, but literally from all over the known world who are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover uh, festival because it's, it's a pilgrimage that they're required to make. In order to keep their religious obligation, they have to come. And so here we see all these people there. And so most of the people that Jesus is teaching probably are from out of town. So they they are way less aware of the animosity that exists from that religious community in Jerusalem towards Jesus. They've heard all the stories about him, and, and, and many of them would have come along with him for some part of the journey at least to get to Jerusalem and would have participated in the triumphal entry that we're going to talk about next week in, on Palm Sunday. And so th- this is after Palm Sunday, prior to the crucifixion. And so so what you get is you get these people who are gathered there in the temple. They've come from all these places, and now they're going to gather every day in the temple. There's this joyous um, atmosphere in this place in spite of the solemnity of uh, Passover, and so there's this joyous atmosphere, and people are gathering in the temple and around the temple. They have to be there in some instances in order to make the sacrifices necessary to bring their lambs for the Passover, all these things. And so all these people are gathered there, and now Jesus stands, and he begins to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The leasehold agreement would typically tend to be either the produce or it would be, you know, a, a cut of the profits. And so here it, it seems that it's the produce. So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, the one that he had established. He had done all the work of getting it there, and now they just have to tend it in the same way that God did all the work and, and, and still does all the work um, in, in salvation, whether that's in the Exodus, the return from Babylon, or in our case, our our exit from the the rule of life that, that says death is the final answer. And so he sends a servant to the tenant so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. And it's because that would be the lease agreement. That's the way they would pay their lease. Is that they would tend it and they would they would make money from what they their activities of tending it, but they would they would then give produce to The owner, but the tenants beat him, the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. Really, he did all the work, gave it to you, and and you're going to just beat him and send him away with nothing? You're going to refuse to pay the rent that you owe on this? I mean, it's it's horrible, but but it happens honestly it does happen it's the reason it's so hard to evict people in so many places now is because you you can do anything you want you you have far more rights than the owner does in some cases and he sent another servant but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed and then he sent a third this one they also wounded and cast out i mean they're treating these people really shabbily right i mean he keeps sending different people to make the collection on this thing and they keep sending him away and then the owner of the vineyard said what shall i do I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. The, the, the only way that you could presume this to be the case would be that, that there's only the father and the son And that there wouldn't be any other there to inherit anything, and therefore nobody would even know that this thing existed. And so that sort of by eminent domain, not eminent domain, but um, there's a a principle at law that, that will allow you to take someone else's property away from them. But it's a it's a complicated process. I mean, you've got to basically you'd have to fence it off. You'd have to make it publicly known to the person that you were denying them access to their own land. And they would have to be so passive that they didn't assert their rights in court. And and that's essentially what they're trying to say here is, is that that, nope, we're going to take this thing. And by by withholding it from the air or preventing the air from making a claim to it, then then we'll have the claim to it. We'll teach them a lesson. I mean, these are obviously wicked, wicked tenants that he's talking about. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's a, it's a powerful, pointed parable. It's not difficult to figure out who he's talking about. But man... Can you imagine standing in the temple anybody standing in the temple saying these people here are so wicked the people that are that are tending this vineyard the ones who are looking after God's stuff and God's people are so wicked that they refuse to give honor to him and honor him as the as the ultimate owner of the vineyard and, and they're willing even to kill his son in the misguided belief that that means that they'll inherit that vineyard and and it'll be theirs. And, and they're no longer recognizing him as the owner and his claim and all that he's done you can see some of this um, thought that, that Jesus is using here. You can see some of it in Psalm 80 when, when it says, you took a vine out of Egypt, and you tended it, and you did all these things, and now you left it alone, and others have come in and destroyed the vine. Here, Jesus is saying, no, it's not even that. It's it's y'all, you people, you leaders. You've destroyed this vineyard. And and." He, the comparisons that he's making here are, are the ones that God sends would be the prophets. Those are the ones that have been sent in the past, has been the prophets. And, and the people clearly see exactly what Jesus means and exactly who he's talking about. Because their response to this, it, when they heard this, is surely not. Well, if you're just hearing a man tell a story, and you don't understand the application of it, and you don't understand the implication of it, you hear that story. If you just hear it as a story, and you don't understand the implications, you don't understand who it's being told about, you don't answer with, surely not, when you say he'll destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, your response would be, that's what he ought to do. Right? I mean, there's no way to hear that parable and not at the end of it agree with Jesus 100% that that's exactly what needs to be done. But here the response is surely not, because they knew. They knew what it meant. They knew what it meant was that that, that the the father, the owner of the vineyard, would, would overthrow Judaism and give it to others. Wait, you can't do that. We're covenant with you, but he's doing a new thing, and it's a new covenant. It's to be the covenant in the blood of Jesus, and so he's not overthrowing his covenant with his people. He's making a new covenant, bringing others into that covenant through the blood of Jesus, not through circumcision, not through keeping you know, every jot and tittle of the law, No, this is something totally different that jesus is doing but but there's no way that you could hear that parable and react the way they do unless you understood fully the implication and and it's interesting that he's talked in parables all these all this time and even the disciples have been confused about what jesus means by some of these parables at the end of it they go hey can you like clue us in on what that was about And there were frequently times when he spoke in parables and they had no earthly idea what he was talking about. But here everybody knows. Finally, after all this time, everybody in the crowd knows exactly what this parable means and who the tenants are and who the owner of the vineyard is. Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The, indeed, <laughs> they should fear the people, because the people had acclaimed Jesus as the son of David. Just a few days prior to that, when he came into the city, he had been acclaimed as the coming king, the one who is coming to establish a peaceable kingdom. And so there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. A lot of those people are not from Jerusalem, so they don't understand the enmity between these leaders and Jesus. They don't understand the issues. And so what they've got to do is contrive a way to get Jesus to a point in a place where they control the narrative, not him. And, and so they fear the people because they know they can't act until they get control of the narrative. And so what are they going to do and how are they going to do that? Well, they're going to do it at night and they're going to they're going to keep working at that narrative all through the night. This one brings a charge, that one brings a charge, but they couldn't get them to agree. And finally, they come to the place where they've got a charge against him that, that they can make stick and then they can publicly proclaim that he's a blasphemer. And, and he's spoken against the things of God. He's spoken against God, and he's made himself equal to God. And, and at that point, they've gotten control of that narrative. They've gotten control of the narrative. And so that's the, the why they feared the people was they didn't have control of the narrative at this point. Jesus did. And so that's what they have to do. It's what tyrants always have to do. They have to get control of the narrative and convince people that something that people know is not true is actually the truth. And I've seen it over and over again for the last few years of people who absolutely believe a narrative that's a lie. And it happens day after day, week after week. And, and now I'm beginning to realize, well, that's been going on forever. It, we're always being lied to. We're being manipulated. It's a 1984 world. There's no question that it is. It's been a 1984 world for a very long time. And, and we need to be aware and we need to be wise in that. And, but how does that mean that we should live in this world? Well, it means we need to pay attention to the author of truth and, and to realize and recognize that the only one in the universe we can trust is God that his truth is the only thing that we have. Everything else is contingently true because it quite possibly might be untrue. And so we need a guide star. We need a a, a true north. And that's the word of God. And, And it's the word of God written, but it's also the word of God enfleshed in Jesus. And he has given us his Holy Spirit so we can discern these things. We need to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And the way that we do that is prayer. It's by being in God's Word. It's to say, Lord, I I know how I'm reacting to something I just heard, but the the honest truth is I need to be careful. I need to be careful uh, whether or not that is true. And so we need to lay down everything else. We need to kind of divorce ourselves from so much in the world um, in order that we can stand in truth and that we not be blown to and fro by lies told by politicians. And, and I mean all politicians. He says, Paul says this. I mean, when he talks to the the, the Philippian church, he has um, seen everything for what it is. And he, he's, he's understood finally that he had believed a lie for quite a long time. And, and that is that Jesus was not the incarnate son of God, that he was a pretend Messiah and he was a deceiver. But, but now he's come to know Jesus, and he's come to see the beauty of Jesus. He's come to see the beauty of Jesus that, that lay in becoming a servant. By laying aside, equality with God is not something to be grasped. And he was found in the form of a servant. And, and Paul says, that's who I want to be. I used to be proud of my learning. I used to be proud of all this stuff. But then what I saw was that ultimately all that I had learned wasn't true because it led me to a wrong conclusion about Jesus. doesn't mean the word of God wasn't true. He said, I, it just means that I was led astray. And, and the proof of that is I didn't recognize the Son of God when he was among us. But I've been healed. I've been redeemed. I've been, uh, I should, I deserve to die for what I was doing. But, but he, the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me, and even forgave my sin. So in looking at his past and everything that came before in the same way that that God encourages the people to through Isaiah, he says, I count everything as loss. Everything that he had before, he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So in light of Jesus, he says, nothing else has any value at all. It's all loss. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. All the stuff that I've lost, and Paul lost a lot. I mean, he's in prison at this point. He said, I count those things, the, the loss of all things, as rubbish for the sake of Christ in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain to the resurrection of the dead he's saying i don't care what it costs me i'm willing to pay any price god demands of me in order that i might attain the resurrection of the dead and the only way that i can have that is by persevering in faith and persevering in the proclamation of jesus christ that's all i have but it is more than enough it doesn't matter What happens to me in this life is what Paul's saying. As long as I have Jesus, I have all that I need throughout eternity. He is enough. In fact, he is way more than enough. And that's exactly what Paul's saying. Look, I don't care about all that other stuff. Anything that I ever attained in this life in any shape, form, or fashion, I don't care about anymore. Because I just want to have Jesus I want to know him and be known by him. I want to be his. I want to be possessed by him. And I'm keeping my eyes fixed on the kingdom in order to get there. He says, not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect. But I press on, even in prison, to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The one that he rejected, the one that he persecuted the church over. He says, he's made me his own. He claimed me, Paul, the chief of sinners. He claimed me as his own. And he enabled me to become a child of God. And all the stuff that I did before that, trying to become a child of God, was fruitless. But Jesus made me a child of God. He made me his own. It's a powerful, powerful statement. Brothers, I don't consider what I, that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's, Paul encourages us again and again. He encourages churches to lay aside everything that hinders you from running that race. And so my, my, my challenge and charge to you and to me today is, is to, to look again as we near the end of Lent, to look again and see what it is in our lives that really needs to go? What is it that hinders us from running that race? What is it that, that separates us from the fullness of the love of Christ? Where is it that we need to get rid of things in our lives in order that we might know him more and become truly his own?